Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, are you in or are you out? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional, nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast, where we'll be focusing on the kidney and discussing dialysis. There's been some talk about treating more patients on dialysis at home, and to help us understand the who, what, when, where, and why about dialysis and kidneys, we have an excellent panel here today. Would everybody like to introduce themselves? Hi, I'm Roger. I'm a renal physiologist, so this is right down my alley for once. Hello, my name is Dr. Georgina Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education. Hi, my name is Tiffany, and I'm a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed medical student. Before we start talking about dialysis, we need to understand some of the basic anatomy and physiology about kidneys and blood filtration. Before I started medical school, I didn't even know what the kidneys were or where they were. Could you please explain some of this to us? So kidneys, interestingly, do look like the word describes. They are shaped like a kidney bean. We refer to them also as renal. That's another anatomical term. And they sit in our abdominal cavity. So that's the part of your body below your rib cage. And if you take your hands and you put them towards your back and you feel your spine, so the bony part in the middle of the back, and bring them a little bit closer to the front, you'll feel a rib cage there. That rib cage, the bottom border, inferior border of that rib cage, actually helps protect the kidneys. So our kidneys sit on the back part or posterior part of the abdominal cavity, two-thirds of the way protected by the thoracic cage. Kidneys, because they're on the back, they are what's termed retroperitoneal, behind the peritoneum. The peritoneum is sort of like if you picture glad wrap. It's very sticky and it covers the kidney on the front side of it. So when we say kidneys are retroperitoneal, we're saying they're behind the sticky glad wrap on the back part of the abdominal cavity. I've learned kidneys are for filtering blood, but how does the blood get there? So the vascular supply or blood supply to the kidney is really important. And interestingly, again, hashtag embryology matters, The kidneys start developing in the pelvic region, and because the fetus elongates as the kidneys are developing, they appear to ascend or rise up from the pelvis into the upper abdominal region. As the kidneys begin to ascend or appear to ascend, they change their vascular supply. They start off with getting vascular supply from the iliacs, which are in the pelvis, Then they move and change so that they get vascular supply from the aorta. And then finally, from the upper aorta, from the renal vessels and the inferior vena cava, or IVC. The aorta actually tends to be more towards the left or midline in the body, whereas the inferior vena cava tends to be more towards the right side of the body. What does this mean? This means that the left renal veins 
are actually longer than the right renal vein because they have further to travel. The kidney has really multiple functions. I guess you might regret inviting me along today because I might go on about it for hours. But I guess the main function is the production of urine. And that's important because it enables the removal of waste products and also the regulation of the content of the plasma and so the fluid in our body. We'll get into that in a little bit more detail later, I think. But I guess what's important is just to recognise that there are really three different functions that the kidney carries out in order to produce urine. So the first is the filtration of the fluid component of the blood, which we call plasma, which occurs at a specialised functional unit called the glomerulus. And then there are two processes that sort of condition the urine as it moves down the tubules in the kidney. One is reabsorption, where substances are transported from within the tubule back into the blood. And the other is secretion, where substances are transported from the blood actually into the urine. What happens to the urine after it's formed in the kidney? The kidneys are only a part of the larger urinary system. There's an upper and a lower urinary system. The kidneys are a part of the upper urinary system, as well as their connection to the bladder, known as the ureter. The ureter is a tube which connects the kidney to the bladder. The bladder then holds the urine until it's appropriate to release it. When you get to the toilet, the connection from the bladder to the outside world is known as the urethra. That's right. We had anatomy labs where we looked at the nephrons of the kidney under microscopes. Interestingly, nephron comes from the word nephros in Greek, which actually means kidney. So I guess you could argue that nephrons are the most important part of the kidney. What do they do? So, Tiff, as I was saying before, the nephrons carry out the main function of the kidney, which is to make the urine. And they do that by filtering it and then conditioning that urine through these functional uh, units called nephrons. And each of our kidneys has about a million of these nephrons. But it does it in a really crazy way. Every 25 minutes or so, we filter the entire fluid component of our blood. So that's the plasma. And then the kidneys reabsorb about 99% of the water and salts that were filtered in that urine, and it actually costs energy for it to do so. So it's a really crazy way. It's like if you were cleaning your house. You throw everything in the house out onto the lawn and then bring back all of the stuff that you wanted to keep and just let out on the lawn the stuff that you wanted to throw away. But of course, that's evolved over millennia because we come from animals that used to live in the sea where there was lots of salt and water, and so they didn't have to conserve it. Now, of course, we've moved out onto land and that creates some problems for us. And it's likely that some of the problems that lead to kidney diseases in those of us that live for a long time and live on land arise from the fact that the kidney has evolved from an organ that was owned by animals that lived in the sea. Wow, I never really thought about it that way. This might be a silly question, but why does the blood need filtering? So the food and fluids that we consume contains lots of good stuff that we need, but they also contain chemicals that can be toxic, particularly if they build up in our blood. We also make some of these toxins out of the good stuff as well. So for example, when we metabolize or break down proteins, we make products that contain nitrogen. This stuff, like the chemical urea, is nasty if we have too much of it in our blood. The liver can turn some toxic chemicals, such as alcohol, into less toxic chemicals. But in the end, the main route for getting rid of all of these chemicals is via the production of urine. So kidneys are really important. And what happens if we don't have them or if they don't work? 
If we think about some of the functions of the kidney that we've just discussed, we can start to predict what might happen if these functions don't work anymore. We've heard that the kidney plays an important role in filtering toxins from the blood. So if the kidney can't work to do this, these toxins are going to keep on circulating through the blood and when they reach different organs, they might affect those organs. What would be some of the signs or symptoms of having kidney disease? Some signs or symptoms related to this might include itching, mental status changes such as confusion or difficulty concentrating, nausea, vomiting and loss of appetite. We've also heard that the kidneys help regulate the amount of fluid in our bodies. So if the kidneys aren't working well, this fluid might build up. We might see this fluid build up as swelling of the ankles or peripheral edema and fluid on the lungs known as pulmonary edema. We might also see prominent veins, which your doctor might assess by observing the jugulus venous pulsation in your neck. The kidneys also play a role in regulating the amount of acid in our blood, known as the acid-base balance, and they also have some functions related to the production of hormones. So they help with the metabolism of vitamin D and to stimulate the production of red blood cells. So if these areas go wrong, someone might develop anemia or low red blood cell count, and they might become very tired and pale. If the vitamin D metabolism goes wrong, this might result in weakened bones. In terms of the acid-base balance, someone with kidney failure might develop acidosis, or too much acid in the blood, in which case they might start breathing a lot quicker to try and blow off the excess acid in their breath. Is kidney function like a tap which turns either on or off? I think there's a misconception that failure equals complete loss of function when actually there are degree or stages of failure, like slowly turning off the tap. Kidney failure also depends on how quickly that function is lost, that is, whether the failure happens very acutely, over hours to days, or chronically, over months to years. When we classify kidney disease, healthcare professionals will use the terms acute and chronic for kidney disease. Specifically, we use the terms acute kidney injury, or AKI, and chronic kidney disease, or CKD, also known as chronic renal failure. Is there a classification system for the severity of kidney disease? There is, and in chronic kidney disease, we refer to this as stages of the disease. We have stages 1 through to 5, with stage 1 being quite a minimal loss of function, through to stage 5 or severe disease, which usually requires something to replace the function of the kidneys. How do you actually measure kidney function in order to stage the disease? Kidney function is a pretty vague term, but normally if a clinician is talking about kidney function, what they mean is glomerular filtration rate, which is the rate at which the plasma component of the blood is filtered. It's a difficult thing to measure in patients, but what we can do is we can estimate it by measuring the concentration of a substance called creatinine in their serum. Because the concentration of creatinine in serum increases if the kidney is not working well, if it's not filtering much, you can use a range of calculations, a formula, to determine estimated glomerular filtration rate from the serum concentration of creatinine. Those equations take into account things like age and sex, don't they? They do, yeah, and uh, some of the older ones also take into account body weight, but these days the favoured calculations uh, express the estimated glomerular filtration rate according to body surface area, so the body weight comes out of the picture. One thing that we 
want to be careful about, though, is not confusing the function of the kidney, which is the glomerular filtration rate, with how much urine we produce. So remember that we filter all of our plasma every 25 minutes, but we reabsorb usually about 99% of the salt and the water. So we can double our urine output by changing the amount of reabsorption of salt and water by just 1%. Changes in the reabsorption of salt and water have a really profound effect on how much urine we excrete, even if glomerular filtration rate stays constant. And what causes renal failure? We can break the causes down into three groups related to the anatomy of the kidney. So we talk about pre-renal, intrarenal and post-renal causes of renal failure. Pre-renal, or before the kidney, refers to things that affect the amount of blood getting to the kidneys. That might be problems with the blood vessels going to the kidneys, or it might be things that affect the whole body that decrease the ability of the heart to pump or the amount of fluid going through your blood vessels. Intrarenal refers to things that affect the kidney itself. So those are usually diseases that affect the kidney, or it might be different drugs or other nephrotoxic agents. Those are substances that are injurious to the kidney. Post-renal are things that affect the ability of the urine to get out of the body. So that might be some sort of obstruction of the ureter or the urethra. So those are things like kidney stones or an enlarged prostate that obstructs the urethra. So it's similar to a tap. If there's a blockage anywhere in the piping system, so in this case anywhere from where the kidney releases fluid into the ureter all the way down to the bladder and then out to the urethra, could cause renal failure. What are the most common causes of renal failure? So it depends whether we're talking about chronic or acute renal failure. For chronic renal failure, these are things like diabetes and high blood pressure. There are also a whole list of diseases that affect the kidney itself that can cause kidney failure and less common things like congenital or inherited conditions such as polycystic kidney disease although the prevalence of this will vary between populations. For acute kidney failure, this is frequently multifactorial and frequently iatrogenic. When I say iatrogenic, I mean caused by healthcare. So this might be medications or procedures. However, we don't always know what causes kidney failure. In up to 20% of people, we don't find out. So it's important to recognise that it's really normal for our kidney function to decline gradually as we get older. So in effect, we're all on a trajectory towards end-stage kidney disease. You can actually lose up to 90% of the function of your kidney without even really experiencing any symptoms. So luckily, I guess, for most of us, we'll die of something else before our kidneys pack up completely. In chronic kidney disease, the gradual decline in renal function is less gradual than it is in those of us who do not get kidney disease. Acute kidney injury is when there's an abrupt decline in kidney function, which usually happens about over, say, 48 hours or less. As you say, Georgia, it can result from certain medical procedures such as major surgery or the administration of drugs or radiocontrast agents that are used for imaging procedures. Sepsis, which incurs when you get a really bad infection, is also a major cause of acute kidney injury. How do we go about investigating for kidney disease? So we've heard from Roger about testing for the creatinine and estimating the glomerular filtration rate. We do those by taking a blood test. However, these will tell us about decline in kidney function, 
but they won't tell us anything about the underlying cause. To help determine that, we might need to do some imaging. Commonly, doctors will order an ultrasound of the urinary system to see if there's any blockage, so a post-renal cause. They also might need to do a biopsy of the kidney, which will tell us some things about some of the intrinsic renal causes. The kidney plays a critical function in filtration rates, and we've seen the various ways that this function can be altered or diminished. So what can doctors do to treat kidney disease? It all depends on how much kidney function has already been lost. If somebody is not yet at a severe stage where they need renal replacement therapy, which we'll get onto in a bit, the aim is to preserve the remaining kidney function so that hopefully they don't need renal replacement therapy. This might involve medications or lifestyle interventions to control any underlying diseases that are affecting the kidney. So that might be blood pressure lowering medications if someone has hypertension that is leading to kidney disease, or it might be medications to control blood glucose in someone who has diabetes. If there are any medications that someone is on that are nephrotoxic or injurious to the kidney, these can be weaned or ceased if able. A common class of medications that can affect the kidney are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, such as Nurofen. Other medications that are processed by the kidney might need to have their dose adjusted in someone with kidney disease. The final step of treatment before renal replacement therapy is planning for this, because this can be quite a complex, involved process. When reviewing medications for someone with kidney disease, something a doctor will look for is called the triple whammy. This is a combination of three medications which, when taken together, can really badly affect kidney function. These are the NSAIDs that I mentioned before, plus a diuretic, plus either an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. Those last two are two similar classes of antihypertensives. The triple whammy that you mentioned is a really dangerous combination, but individually, I've heard that some of those drugs can actually be what's called renoprotective. What does that mean? Recall that we identified earlier that a slow decline in kidney function is really just a normal consequence of aging. Essentially, the problem for patients with chronic kidney disease is that their kidney function is declining way too fast, so the aim is to then slow it down. As Georgie said, we try to do this by treating the underlying cause of the decline in kidney function, which might be high blood pressure or diabetes. So in this sense, any drug that lowers blood pressure or blood glucose in people with diabetes is renoprotective. But it would also be really nice if we could develop drugs that have additional actions that protect the kidney over and above these blood pressure lowering and glucose lowering effects. There's some evidence that certain classes of blood pressure lowering drugs, the so-called ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers that were included in that triple whammy, if given chronically to people in the early stages of chronic kidney disease, really diminish the rate of decline in kidney function. There's also recent evidence that some new drugs that are used to treat diabetes, the so-called flozins that act to increase glucose excretion, are also renoprotective. There's been a lot of interest in drugs that might reduce the development of scarring in the kidney, which we call fibrosis, but none of these drugs have really made it past preclinical testing into regular clinical use. If none of the medications work for renal failure, is that when we move on to dialysis? Another term we use is renal replacement therapy. Dialysis is one way of replacing the function of the kidneys. 
Dialysis is a way of removing excess fluid, solutes, and toxins from the blood. There are two main kinds of dialysis. There's hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. Essentially, a hemodialysis machine acts as a large external kidney with very different anatomical relationships. And peritoneal dialysis relies on creating a concentration gradient across membranes to cause filtration. Again, remember that peritoneal cavity is that cavity in the abdomen that's covered with the glad wrap. Both types of dialysis utilize a basic process of osmosis or diffusion across a semi-permeable membrane. The central concept here is that nature loves a state of equilibrium where the concentration of molecules is the same everywhere. So if you set up a situation where two fluids are separated by a membrane that a molecule can cross and the concentration of the molecule is higher on one side than the other, the molecule will diffuse across the membrane so that its concentration is the same on both sides. So in dialysis, either the blood or the peritoneal fluid is put in contact with the membrane through which small molecules but not large molecules like proteins can pass. In the fluid on the other side of the membrane, the concentration of what we might call the nice molecules, the ones that we want to keep, is the concentration that we want to achieve in the blood. But this fluid doesn't have any of the nasty molecules in it, so these diffuse across the membrane and so out of the blood or the peritoneal fluid. So it's a simple concept, but it really requires some very complicated machinery. For the dialysis machine to do its job, blood needs to get into the machine. This usually involves needles being placed into a surgically created arteriovenous fistula, most commonly in the upper limb. It can occur temporarily through lines, although these carry an infection risk. Logistically, hemodialysis occurs three days per week, and each session runs for four to five hours. It can happen at a dialysis centre, which might be attached to a hospital or in the community, or in some cases it can happen at home. Because of that very different anatomy needed for dialysis, we create this fistula, as Georgie talked about. A fistula is a connection between two hollow organs, in this case, an artery and a vein. These need to be artificially connected via surgery, which means you take the artery and the vein and they need to be close to each other so that you're not trying to pair very distant structures together. Additionally, you need easy access, so the fistula needs to be close to the skin for the needle access. Therefore, an ideal site to create this arteriovenous fistula is in the wrist, as Georgie pointed out, between the radial artery and the cephalic or cephalic vein. Key to all of this is that the anatomy of veins and arteries is very different. Arteries have a much thicker muscular wall because they're pumping blood very fast and hard, so they're the higher pressure system. Veins have less muscle, and so they are normally the lower pressure system. The whole reason we do this is to increase the blood flow through the cephalic vein. The pressure now going through the cephalic vein causes it to thicken and dilate. This allows a greater area for blood to pass through, which is ideal for placing needles in someone who needs dialysis. The process of the cephalic vein thickening and dilating usually takes about six weeks, so a fistula isn't used straight away after it's created. Veins can be damaged through repeated needling for blood tests and intravenous cannulas, so it's important that for someone who needs a fistula that their suitable veins are saved when planning ahead for dialysis to give the fistula the best chance of success. That's a huge time commitment to have hemodialysis. No wonder there's interest in being able to perform this procedure at home. 
But how does peritoneal dialysis differ? Peritoneal dialysis, or PD, involves infusing fluid into the peritoneal cavity that Michelle was talking about before. Metabolic waste products in capillaries then similarly diffuse down a concentration gradient into the fluid, which is then removed. For this to occur, there needs to be a way of getting fluid into the peritoneal cavity. So a catheter is surgically inserted through the anterior abdominal wall into the peritoneal cavity. To gain access to the peritoneal cavity through the anterior abdominal wall, you need to go through the skin, subcutaneous tissue, the anterior abdominal wall musculature, the deep fascia that's associated with that, transversalis fascia, and then parietal peritoneum. At that point, you've accessed the peritoneal cavity. Metabolic waste products in the capillaries diffuse into the fluid, similar to in hemodialysis, like Roger mentioned before. There are two types of PD. These are continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis and automated peritoneal dialysis. Continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis involves infusing several liters of fluid into the peritoneal cavity, leaving it there for four to six hours, removing the fluid, and then repeating this process several times over the day. Although whilst this is happening, the person can still go about their regular activities or ambulate about, hence the name. In automated peritoneal dialysis, a machine does this exchanging automatically overnight. This may be confusing the issue, but there's also something called hemofiltration, which sometimes happens in hospitals. How does this differ from dialysis? Hemodialysis, as we've discussed, relies on diffusion and is usually used in chronic kidney disease. Hemofiltration, on the other hand, is primarily used in acute kidney failure. Water and solutes are filtered from the blood across the semi-permeable membrane, but this time under a pressure gradient. One of the things hemofiltration is more effective for is removing excess fluid that might accumulate in kidney failure. It's also sometimes used when patients have cardiopulmonary bypass, when they have cardiac surgery. If they've got quite a lot of fluid buildup, either before or during or after their surgery, then this hemofiltration can rapidly remove some of that fluid so that they come back to having a relatively normal fluid status. So hemofiltration is used in the acute setting and in the chronic or longer term setting you use dialysis. But how do you actually choose between hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis? It's a really complex decision and lots of discussions are held between the patient and their renal physician, that's a kidney specialist. Part of this is patient preference, such as how much they want to participate in management of their kidney disease, and whether they prefer treatment at home or in a dialysis centre. It also depends a bit on access for dialysis, and by that I mean the piping or the catheter for fluid to enter the peritoneal cavity in peritoneal dialysis or the fistula that needs to be created for hemodialysis. So for example, if someone's had extensive abdominal operations, there might be too much scarring for the peritoneal dialysis to work effectively. There is always the option never to start dialysis, which some patients might prefer. This might be especially the case if they have other serious medical conditions or a limited life expectancy and dialysis isn't something they'd want to go through. Do patients ever recover from their kidney disease so that they can then stop having dialysis? Some patients who need dialysis for acute kidney injury will recover and eventually come off dialysis. However, chronic kidney disease is progressive and irreversible. 
So in the case of chronic kidney disease, no, people don't recover. There is one other treatment option that we've mentioned that might be suitable for some people with chronic kidney disease, and that is a kidney transplant. So that's one way someone with chronic kidney disease could come off dialysis. A kidney transplant might be from a relative, that's termed a living related transplant, or it might be from an organ donor. But the good thing is, because we've got two kidneys, if you do donate a kidney to someone, you can function perfectly well with only one. This sounds like fodder for another podcast. Thanks everybody for joining us today to talk about kidneys and dialysis. I appreciate having our fantastic team here today. Thank you all. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag AnatQ.